0: Welcome to the CEC Report. This is a special episode on why financial speculation is not real. We need Glass-Steagall to protect the real economy. In this special presentation, we're going to play excerpts of a speech I gave at a CEC seminar on the 26th of February, 2017, a month or so ago, where I go through the crisis facing the global economy and as the Australian economy but i especially illustrate the unreal nature of much fin- of what is financial activity in the world at the moment and all this unreal nature is amounts up to these speculative bubbles that are the great threat to the global financial system that are leading us into another crisis how unreal it is will shock many viewers so instead of me repeating that Watch this presentation and I urge you all, um, get involved in the CEC's campaign for the solution which is Glass-Steagall. Because what Glass-Steagall does is it puts a wall down the middle of the financial system. The real stuff is on one side, that is commercial banking where our deposits go and everything else is on the other side. And that unreal stuff no longer has any government protection. And without government protection, it will wither and die. Right? And it's very important because at the moment it's a parasitical force on the economy. that just sucks real wealth out of it and impoverishes everybody. So um, with that, what's this presentation on why most financial speculation is unreal and we need Glass-Steagall to protect the real economy. This is one way of putting it, the Hamilton Principle. Government should be involved in banking. And that is to contrast with this. And if there have been any lessons learned, Mr. Speaker, over the last 30 years in Australia, it is the government should not be involved in banking. So that is that is our homeowners and bank protection bill, the only solution uh, video, and that was Joe Hockey in early 2009. That was his takeaway from the global financial crisis, it, what it taught us. That government should not be involved in banking. So um, let's let's contradict him. But first, before we do, let's see what time of day it is because uh, we are roaring into another global financial crisis. Now, we've been saying that for a while. This is what news.com.au said last week. If we go through those clips... Next one, please. All right, what news did... Um, This is a slight preview for the next CEC report. Craig and I covered this on Friday. Um, News had seven signs of economic Armageddon. And what was totally striking about the seven signs is they are all things that the CEC has been jumping up and down about for a long, long time. And so we'll just go through. They, They included some graphs in their article. By the way, this is their report of an analysis by a a government economic adviser named John Adams who formerly worked for Arthur Sinodinos. <laughs> so this is not a nobody, this is not an external crank, this is not one of those zero hedge outside the system commentators, this is Arthur Sinodinos' former adviser, right? Um, but wasn't it Arthur Sinodinas that didn't know anything about what was happening this year that's, that the same Arthur Sinodinos, and I suspect he, he doesn't know anything about what's happening in the global financial system too. So this is, um, these, ty- these type of graphs speak for themselves. Look at Australia's uh, record household debt and it's not, just, it's not just record for us, it's the highest or one of the very highest in the world. Next slide. Net foreign debt as a percent of GDP is now over a trillion dollars and that's net, which means the gross is over two trillion dollars. And what that means is that that's the, it's, it's good that it starts here because this is when the tariff cuts happened and all these cheap imports that flooded Australia, we haven't been able to pay for it. That's what our net foreign debt means, right? So it's been great, and everyone will tell you how great trade is, but we haven't been able to pay for it. We have capitalized on our first world status and our rich minerals to have a good credit line, right? And external creditors are willing to lend us money. That's what's paying for it. We aren't paying for it ourselves. Next one. Um, This was in there because when interest rates are this low where can they go and if you look Negative. this is what hap- this is what they are able to do to respond to the global financial crisis what can they do now that's what it took then what what will it take now right they've taken they've they've, they've lost that option for dealing with it and it wouldn't have it wouldn't have been able to deal with it anyway next one this is I had to confess, there's an aspect of this picture that I hadn't quite thought of, as an angle I hadn't looked at. Um, We've been yelling about the property bubble. What this graph shows is just how much of, how much credit has gone into the property bubble as a percent of GDP. And looking around the audience here now, I I would wager a bunch of you were homeowners in 1991, right, when, yes, interest rates were high, but house prices were much, much smaller, and it was easy to get a house in Australia, right? Um, look at, back then, only 20%, like the total credit in the housing market was just was the equivalent of 20% of a much, much lower GDP. Now it's 90% of a much, much higher GDP. This is bonkers, right? That's the bubble. That's not, that, that's, there's no supply and demand here in this housing bubble. That's the bubble. Banks have been allowed to plow money into it. Um, where are we Okay so that's these these are predicates for Australia and then the article went on I don't they didn't provide graphs for this but the article went on to talk about the global situation including the global derivatives crisis and for for a news.com.au the most mainstream of all mainstream Tabloid publications in Australia to devote space to the serious issue of derivatives and the international crisis and how that's a threat to us was quite stunning. So, that's some Australian predicates. Let's look at Europe. Here you have, these are, this is the current situation in the UK. Um, the, the only thing to, I'm not going to try and explain this graph, the only thing to explain is this bit. Those mean that these banks have failed Bank of England stress tests, right? And the stress tests were um, framed on on similar circumstances to 2008. Now there's an epistemological flaw there because what they're saying is, oh, if we go through something similar, how will our banks fare? Well, they failed if it's something similar. But it's never something similar. Right? You can't, if if banks knew what was going to crash them next, they wouldn't be doing it. You can't actually stress test the future that's why you need something like Glass Steagall. Just put it all, put all the threats aside. So, that, but that's it. That's, the, that's the state in, in um, uh, uh, London. This bank here, RBS, which failed the big, the, the worst. That's a British government-owned bank. Oops. Two, eight years after the crash, and the British government had to nationalise it. It's still in an, a, a basket case of a bank, yes. right? Next one, and now we're getting into the real territory, right? So this is this is Deutsche Bank's derivatives compared not just to Germany's GDP, but to Europe's GDP as a whole. And of course, that is the black hole in the middle of the European financial sy- um, system. And you've all seen the the uh, spider web graphic with Deutsche Bank, right? It I haven't put it here. It through that is connected to the whole world. But as, if you saw the Deiska Deutsche, um, Deutsche Kotagawa's uh, interview with Michael Billington of VIR back, back in October, he made the point Deutsche Bank is not a German bank. It is a British bank. And look at this, so there's, there's its derivatives, but then look at this picture. Euro-denominated derivatives are all traded in London. Right? That's the, you know, there's so the real black hole of the European banking system. It actually isn't Deutsche Bank, it's the City of London as it always has been anyway. Um, then you had this analysis come out the other day. This is quite interesting. Uh, this this gentleman, Bruce Wilds, uh, has done his own independent investigation of derivatives because what, what you, there's, there's official reporting of derivatives but the biggest problem, and, and, and as bad as that official reporting is, like the Bank for International Settlements has you know, um, derivative statistics for all the banks in the world and for all the countries in the world, that puts it at about $500 trillion. And as bad as that picture is, everybody has known for a long time that the real picture is much worse. And I'll give you an example. Um, uh, We had a young guy visit us uh, around the time of the crash. Bryce? What's his last? I forget his last name. We interviewed him. Anyway, this, this young fella had um, backpacked around Europe after, after doing uni, and he got a job in London just before the crash, working in the back room of the big banks like JP Morgan, and his job was to write up the derivatives contracts when the salesman made the sales. So you have derivatives salesmen in the front room making the derivative sales, and they'd, they'd rush into the back room, throw in the paperwork, and write this up. And so he had to beaver away all, all day, writing up these things. He could never track down those salesmen to get them to sign the damn contract. Right. So when the crash happened, like with Lehman Brothers, this was acknowledged, there was piles of paper in Lehman Brothers' offices, and that's just one bank, all the banks were the same, of unsigned, uncompleted contracts that had started working, but no one was having any ownership of these things, Right. and these would not be counted in the official statistics. And this was the insanity of the global financial system. So we're already talking about official figures are in the hundreds of trillions. Um, uh, this gentleman, Bruce Wilds, quoted a, an English mathematician who made it his business to try and figure out what might the real picture be and he came to the same figure that EIR has used for a long time which is, he, he suggested around $1,200 trillion, right, $1.2 quadrillion. Now, that's also important because it contradicts the claim that since the last crash, derivatives have cooled off. And it means I actually, it means I actually haven't. Uh, okay, so, um, and then of course, uh, I, don't have a, I don't have a graph for it, but you, you then go to the United States, which has a $2 trillion exposure to that European situation. And on top of that, the four American banks, just four, account for um, $220 trillion of the $1,200 trillion derivatives pile. Just four American banks account for that much of it, right? So the whole world is faced with this very severe threat. So bear with me here. I've got, I got the book here. This guy, what's really good about this book, um, by Frank Partnoy, is he wrote this in 1997. And when I read this book a few years ago, I thought, why weren't they all rounded up and arrested then? There's enough stuff in this book, right? Where he's got the guy who, you know, John Mack, who was on Hillary Clinton's fundraising committee for a campaign this year, is in this book in 1994, telling his Morgan Stanley traders, there's blood in the water, let's go rip somebody's face off. That's how they talk. They sent their traders out to... Skirmish, what do you call it? Uh, Skeet Skeet shooting and but also paintball things, right? And 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 the and the chief trader in the floor was not a a mathematics whiz or something like that. It was an ex-army guy who was made the chief trader because he was so um, verbally violent to his staff, right? He gave them a killer instinct. So they did not, because what, what does rip your face off mean? Rip your face off means selling something to a client that you know is going to make them a loss but not care about it. And when it does make them a loss and they complain, you actually cheer, yeah, I'll rip these bloody face off. That, this, is, this is all documented. He, he got out of it before 1997 because he thought if he stayed in, he'd be, he'd be going to jail. right? He wrote this book in 1997 and nothing was done and you know, eventually, all um, went uh, escalated till 2008. Someone actually advised his former employer to buy up every copy available. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he's he's become he's become much more interesting since 2008. That's for sure. So, here's two derivatives that he explains, right? Because what that's that's actually another thing. It is worth knowing. It's easier to explain derivatives as in metaphors right? Gambler's side bets, because that's what they are. You know, it's not even the, we'll, we'll use some examples later, but it's not even the, the, the initial bet. It's the side bet on the bet. That is what derivatives are. Um, and when you're organising around, that's all you want. But if you want to know, if you want to prove to yourself why that's what they are, you can read a book like this, because he, he wrote it for the public. He explains in painstaking detail and he simplifies it, how these derivatives actually work. And I want to give you two examples. So the first one is called Pearls. Principle Exchange rate linked security. And they invented this derivative so that it looked like a bond. So they could sell it to these people I said before, the insurance fund managers. Because they were only allowed to buy bonds. So they sold them a thing that looked like a bond. Now a bond has a set term, right? Five years, 10 years. And when it matures, so you get an interest payment, and when it matures you get your principal back. That's a bond. Right, it's not unlike like a normal loan, which is amortised and whatever you know, so you pay the principal and capital over time. Bond is principal and capital separate, and and interest separate, and you get you get the um, principal back at the end. So it looked like a bond, and these guys could buy it. Now, insurance fund managers were forbidden in those days from speculating on foreign exchange. But some of them wanted to because they're Wall Street. That they were trained as Wall Street predators too, and they, they never met a rule they haven't wanted to get around, right? So these investment banks invented a bond that looked like a bond. It had an interest, set interest payment, and it was a high interest payment. And for an insurance fund manager, it's like, whoa, government bond four percent, I can get seven percent. That's great. I'll get a bigger bonus this year. But the principal repayment at the end was not a straight repayment. It was tied to the fluctuations in three currencies. A formula, right? They worked out that they, they had a formula in there and it was based on where those three currencies were in relation to each other. There was a chance that you got your principal back and a little bit more. And of course that part, was that chance was talked up. There was a far greater chance that you got far less than your principal back and even none at all. Such is the nature of currency markets. They can can fluctuate wildly. And they sold billions of dollars of these things. And the essence is one thing, fraud. Here's the rule, we're gonna invent something to get around the rule. And does it matter to the investment bank salesman that they're selling something so dangerous? No. Does it even matter to the insurance fund manager? Not really, because it's not his money. It matters to he might keep his job or not keep his job, more, more, more kept their jobs than should have, but it's, at the end of the day, it's not his money, right? And that's the type of thing that this industry, this, this sector of the financial system feeds on and people have written books called, like John Kay wrote, Other People's Money to capture the mentality that goes on here and it's all our money. The second one is called the MX Missile, which we've explained in CEC reports, and it was called the MX Missile because when they, at the top, you know, this was in the early 90s, um, the Reagan administration had just had unveiled this massive weapon, the MX Missile. So this related to them, Morgan Stanley being able to help Japanese banks hide their losses. A lot of Japanese banks made big losses on um, Bearings Bank when it collapsed, and of course for the Japanese, you know, honour is everything, right? And the, the collapse of bearings came through just before the end of the financial year in Japan. And these banks had been making a profit. Bearings collapsed. They'd all speculate on it. We're all, we're all you know, facing huge losses. To save face, Morgan Stanley came along and invented a derivative for them that could help them hide that loss. And he explains it as the pot of gold, right? The $100 pot of gold. We're not and, But the, the actual... Just I'll use the gold analogy, but they talk about mortgage backs. they actually use mortgage backed securities in this pot of gold because of this quality of mortgage-backed securities where you can slice and dice them, right, and move them around. So imagine you've got a hundred dollar pot of gold, you've paid hundred dollars for this thing. Half of the gold though is real and it's worth $90. Half of it is fool's gold and it's worth ten dollars. Right? Um, If you sold the half that's real for $90, it cost you $90, you sell it for $90, you haven't made a profit, nothing, nothing's changed. So what do you do? You revalue both halves on your book as an average. So you average each half out where the $90 real is valued on your books at $50. The $10 fake is valued on your books at $50 and you take that, the real pot of gold, and you sell it, because people like the real gold, they're happy to buy it off you, right? And you sell it for 90, and you're marking up a $40 profit every time. And you can do this indefinitely as long as you don't sell the other half. And these banks have sat on those other halves for years, right, chalking up profits on paper that are not real. There's only one word for this. This is fraud. Okay, if you saw the big short, you've seen this example. This is synthetic collateralized debt obligations. Well, here's Dr. Richard Thaler, father of behavioral economics and Selena Gomez to explain.
1: Okay, so here's how a synthetic CDO works. Let's say I bet 10 million on a blackjack hand. 10 million because this hand is meant to represent a single mortgage bond. Okay, Selena has a pretty good hand here, showing 18, Dealer showing seven, that's a really good hand for Selena. Good odds, in fact, her chances of winning this hand are 87%. So, my odds are good. I'm on a winning streak. Everybody in this place wants to get in on the action. How could I lose, right? Now, this is a classic error. In basketball, it's called the hot hand fallacy. A player makes a bunch of shots in a row. People are sure they're gonna make the next one. People think whatever's happening now is gonna to continue to happen into the future. During the real estate boom, markets were going up and up, and people thought they would never go down. So people who are watching and think that I won't lose will make a side bet. Now this is
0: the first synthetic CD. I love Selena Gomez. I Bet you 50 million she wins. And I'll give you a three to one odds.
1: Three to one odds? Okay, I'll take that bet. Now, Somebody else is going to want to make a bet on the outcome of their bet. 50
0: million she wins. That will lead
1: to synthetic CDO number two. Hey, I bet you 200 million that lady in the glasses wins that bet.
0: She probably will win, so I want a great payoff.
1: About 20 to one.
0: Deal. And this will go on and on with more and more synthetic
1: CDOs. And we can transform an original 10 million dollar investment into billions of dollars.
0: You okay? No. I actually feel pretty sick. Just to recap there's a real economy, there's an unreal economy. You have a bit of an insight today into how unreal the unreal economy actually is. It's huge, the unreal economy, right? It's huge. Let's hope he knows that. Jeff Jeff was wrong this morning yesterday when he said he thought he was here in 2002 he was here in 2000 and I remember that the conference he attended um, Larouche had just given a speech called Have You Ever Seen an Earth and Dan Crumble and Larouche described the financial system then in 2002 as like a great big skyscraper we played this in Perth for the CLA launch great big skyscraper where all this stuff is happening and down in the very bottom basement level of skyscraper, there's a little guy with a hammer and an anvil tapping away, and that's the sum total of the global physical economy, <laughs> right? keeping everything above it going, and that really is the situation. So if you're going to reverse that, the only agency that can do it is government. The first thing to do is cut off the parasite, and what's that policy called? Last eagle. eagle. The second thing to do is get the credit going back into what's going to make things work again, and that's what national banking is. That's the Hamilton principle right? It's not rocket science. Don't complicate it, but if people want to defend the financial system, rub their nose in it. All right, we'll end it there.